For Thursday, April 29th, 2021, this is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, changing how humans interact with animals could change the course of the next pandemic and the one after that. They will come, but we can make them come less frequently and we can ensure that they kill fewer people and impact our quality of life to a lesser extent. Thomas Gillespie, a disease ecologist at Emory University, joins me to discuss infectious diseases and our relationship with the natural world. That's next. You love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. Earlier this month, the Georgia Aquarium announced that some of its otters had contracted the coronavirus. Stories about animals getting infected aren't just quirky news items. They hold a deeper significance, says Thomas Gillespie, a disease ecologist at Emory University. He's with me now to discuss what animal infections with the coronavirus mean for this pandemic and the ones to come. Thomas, thanks for talking with me. Happy to be here. Over the course of the pandemic, we have seen a lot of reports of various kinds of animals actually contracting SARS-CoV-2. This is the virus that causes COVID-19. Here in Atlanta in the last month, we saw reports of uh, a number of otters at the Georgia Aquarium getting infected. And I would have to think that when the general public hears a story like this, they might think it's kind of a quirky news item. But it seems to me like there's some deeper significance to the fact that animals can actually contract this virus. So let's start there. Talk to me about what that deeper significance is. Absolutely, Sam. The real issue is that pathogens rarely see the species as the boundary. And so, you know, we have some pathogens that are well known, like smallpox, for example. That's something that we were able to eradicate with a vaccine. The primary reason we were able to do that well is because it's only transferring from human to human. But if you actually go back to its origin, it actually originated from cowpox and it originated from an animal source. So its, a, it's source was animal and then it became a human to human pathogen. But we have many pathogens that continue to be able to spread between species. 
that is how we are in this current pandemic, is, is my understanding. There was this transmission between an animal species and, and humans of SARS-CoV-2. What do we know at this point about the origins and that kind of initial transmission event? We've had over a year now to study this. So where are scientists with how this pandemic actually got kicked off? So... Unfortunately, we'll probably never know exactly where it came from. I have a, a number of friends who are on the WHO team that's been investigating this in detail and other friends who work in the region uh, on related issues. And trying to backtrack to something like this is like finding a needle in a haystack. But we do know that there are many occurrences like this. So this is part of a general pattern of transmission. And we have a really good understanding of what the risk factors are for these events to occur. It really goes back to recognizing that the majority of life on Earth is yet to be discovered and cataloged by scientists. So we've only scraped the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding the species that are out there. So if you go into a rainforest, I do a lot of biodiversity assessment and disease assessment in these very biodiverse natural systems. Every time we go in there, we find new things. Sometimes they turn our understanding on its head. And so for all of that biodiversity, there are pathogens linked to each host species. And so when we disturb those systems, when we go in and build roads or convert these areas to agriculture, Things like this lead to novel interactions where those pathogens that are linked to that biodiverse system can jump out. They can make their way into people or into our domesticated animals and then to us. It's interesting to hear you say that because I think, uh, you know, a moderately informed listener might have heard over the course of the pandemic, well, SARS-CoV-2 came from a human interaction with bats, or early on there was a lot of attention on uh, wet markets in Wuhan and China where different kinds of maybe more exotic species were available for purchase. Is that not still kind of the agreement that this is where this virus came from? So we think that the Wuhan events led to a greater spread of this pathogen in the human population, but that's not per se the origin of it. The origin is still highly contested in terms of how long it had been in humans prior to the Wuhan discoveries and where exactly we saw that initial animal to human jump and whether or not it was animal to animal to human or directly from one species of animal to a human. If I had to put my money on it, I would certainly say that it probably originated in animals in Southeast Asia, not in China proper, and that those either animals were moved to China as part of the wildlife trade, um, where we then saw human exposure, or people were infected in Southeast Asia and then migrated across the border, either temporarily or permanently. You've established that it's maybe impossible to know exactly what happened. How much does the answer to that question matter when it comes to, say, assessing the risk that this kind of event could happen again in the future? It really doesn't matter that much to figure out the specific details, because as I said, the diversity of pathogens that are out there are vast. We can't really go out and catalog everything and be ready for it before it makes the jump. 
So what we have to do is understand the general principles of what the risk factors are and then reduce the risk factors. So if we know that cutting 50% of a rainforest is going to be something that's going to increase the risk of an, another event like this by 80%, then we want to actually shift the way that we're dealing with land use change as a, a practice to reduce that risk. That's the kind of thing we need to be thinking about. What are some of these big trends that we've seen that have potentially increased the risk for this kind of virus to transmit from animals to humans? You mentioned deforestation. I imagine there are many others. There are three big issues. With things like SARS-CoV-2, it's really the link between deforestation, which is leading to novel um, exposure in humans at some point after that disturbance event, linked typically to the wildlife trade. So that's one side of what we're all thinking a lot about. The other side is industrial animal production for agriculture and the risks associated uh, specifically with uh, poultry production and pig production and how that links to uh, influenza, which is pandemic influenza is the other really big factor that we're worried about in terms of global pandemics um, that relate to human behavior. So we've got deforestation, animal production, and, and, and there's a third. The third is that link to the wildlife trade, which in, in the first case, they're both linked to, to see kind of what we, what we saw happening now, most likely. It's interesting to me that you're talking about big systematic activities. Talk to me a little bit more about that. We need to see change from the local to the global. That's really the key. And I've, I've been engaged in this process through a number of um, high-level political fora that the United Nations has organized on this factor. It's the first time that we're really seeing the dialogue between those who are responsible at the highest scale for our financial systems, our agricultural systems, and how the environment relates to that. The environment has almost always been left out of the picture. It's the positive externality that we're exploiting and not having to pay for. But um, what we're realizing is we've created a debt that we can't pay back, and we're starting to reap some of the negative consequences of that. And so... I've been part of a number of dialogues now with people who are operating in these higher systems. And that's really what we have to be thinking about is how do we reform our financial systems to ensure that we're not making it economically advantageous to do things that are unsustainable, that are actually driving these types of risks for future pandemics and in many cases, there's synergy between those factors that are leading to a greater risk of pandemics and increasing our impacts in terms of climate change and losses of biodiversity. Is that a connection that you find people are open to acknowledging exists? I mean, we're here talking about a transmissible virus and, and you are the one who brings up financial systems. Do people's eyes kind of bug out when you do that? So there's a really big disconnect between what you see academics recognizing and what you see policymakers recognizing at the level of the United Nations versus what we see domestically. We're seeing some synergy there with Biden's recent uh, acknowledgments and um, proposals. The U.S. is now on board with 
trying to maintain 30% of our natural environments by 2030, which is a big shift in our approach nationally. But we often see a disconnect as we move toward local from global. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead talking today with Thomas Gillespie, a disease ecologist at Emory University, about how humans interact with animals and what that means for this pandemic and the ones to come. We're thinking very big here, but maybe if we can kind of zoom in, what are the actual kinds of pathways that, say, an an infectious disease might take to move between animals and humans? So we have four commodities that primarily drive the process right now of tropical deforestation, which is the greatest risk for future pandemics. And that includes uh, soy production in the tropics, oil palm production in the tropics, cattle production in the tropics, and timber. And so there are commodities that we can specifically focus on to reduce the risk, to find uh, more sustainable ways for those uh, commodities to be created, and to also work on the, the public demand for those commodities, because there are alternatives that are more sustainable in many cases. You were asking about uh, the kinds of activities that can lead to this kind of transition. We have a lot of examples. So right now, you know, we're all talking about COVID-19. Very few of us are talking about Lassa fever. Lassa fever is another uh, infectious disease. There's an epidemic occurring right now in West Africa. And it's another case where uh, deforestation has led to human disease. In this case, uh, forests have been cleared for oil palm production, and that has forced the native rodent species to look for food elsewhere. They've lost their home, they've lost the forest, and they're just trying to survive. So they're finding resources in the homes of local people. They're then uh, infecting people either directly or indirectly through the peridomestic rodents, you know, the, the rats and the mice that are everywhere in the world. And so that that's one scenario. If we jump over to the Amazon in Brazil, we see Hanta virus. We see along the arc of deforestation of the Amazon, Hanta virus here, Hanta virus here, Hanta virus here. It's like fires of Hanta virus. And that is a case where the soy, which is replacing the forest, is actually the perfect resource for some of the native rodents that uh, are really good reservoirs for hantavirus. So we're basically feeding the host, increasing their densities, one of the most important factors with most infectious disease. Because you mentioned rodents there, that has me thinking very, very historically, and please tell me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is that rats, uh, rodents over the course of human history have been very important reservoirs for infectious uh, agents. I'm thinking about the bubonic plague. So how is this something that we can say is necessarily tied to activity now if this has been something that's been part of kind of human's existence on this planet for thousands of years, potentially? So human infection with zoonotic pathogens is always happening. You know, we're seeing this on the local scale all the time in environments where people are living at the interface of biodiversity. But what's different now is the connectivity of people around the world. 
in most cases in the past, you wouldn't have seen the spread of the pathogen. So it would have jumped into humans and then it burns out locally. But now because we're so connected, things can move to a regional level and become epidemics or go global and be pandemics. So that's an important factor. And the other is that in the West, we have a really naive conception of infectious disease because it's a rare issue for us. You know, most of us are not dealing with infectious disease as a major factor. Our physicians aren't dealing with infectious disease as a major factor. It's a rarity for us to deal with, which is why something like Lyme disease or West Nile, which in the grand scheme of things, these are not really threatening pathogens. We focus a lot on them because it's all we have. You use the word reservoir, which I, I just think is so kind of evocative of, of the way that for these kinds of agents, which can move back and forth between humans and other animals, it, it's kind of a, a place for them to lie in wait and potentially come back and make that transition again. Not only lie in wait, I mean, it's a two-way street. So just as, you know, the pathogens can jump to people in a novel scenario, in, in my own work and the work of others, we also see that these pathogens can jump back into animals. So we see a spill back as well as the spill over. And it's not only that they can hide out there and lurk, it's that there's an evolutionary selection occurring in that system. So there are selective pressures for the pathogens to evolve and change and survive. And when they go into a novel environment, a new species, that provides new opportunities for them to create adaptations that will improve their survival. And sometimes that also makes them more deadly or spread more easily when they jump back into people. So while public health officials have been focused on convincing people to slow the spread to stop mutations in human populations, there's this other factor, which how do we present something like SARS-CoV-2 from doing the same thing in animals and coming back sometime down the road in a, in a scarier way? Yeah, it's, it's something that we're concerned about and that we're working on. So I, I serve on the IUCN uh, primate specialist group. So IUCN is a partner body to the United Nations that provides a scientific basis for how we deal with endangered species, protected areas, uh, how we deal with nature. And within that group, we have a task force that I'm part of to create uh, guidelines to reduce that risk of primate exposure. And we're worried about that both in terms of their survival, because many of them are endangered, as well as the risk of that becoming a new opportunity for these pathogens to evolve in a novel system and then jump back. My PhD student, Amanda Vicente Santos, is a member of the IUCN bat specialist group. So they're advocating for very similar processes uh, looking at bats to make sure we don't um, expose other bat species to this virus and then offer similar opportunities. For someone who is just kind of wondering about the future of the pandemic with SARS-CoV-2, should this kind of the virus makes it into some kind of animal reservoir and changes there and comes back and reinfects humans in a different way, is that something that someone should lose sleep over? Or is it realistic to think that we will be able to bring this current pathogen to heal? The way that this is going to play out is 
is yet unknown, but by far the biggest factor is the human dynamic. Because as I said before, density is the most important factor typically. And because we have so many people infected and living at high density, and in many parts of the world, we're not doing a good job of socially distancing and wearing masks and doing the, the very simple things that can reduce the capacity for the virus to spread, by far the biggest risk factor is people. The link to animals is something we, you know, we need to be working on. We need to invest resources in understanding this linkage better. We need to invest resources in monitoring uh, wildlife to a greater extent. But the, the human link is by far the, the thing we should be losing sleep over. We've already seen examples over the course of this pandemic how uh, SARS-CoV-2 can really take a great toll on certain animal populations. I, I feel like there were large populations of mink that had to be culled because of the way the virus was, was spreading there. So talk to me about what this kind of pathogen can actually mean for animals. So as, as we've seen, a lot of species are susceptible to this virus. There have been laboratory-based experiments that have found that a number of species are susceptible. We've seen these cases in animal production facilities like the mink farms in Europe that uh, it can not only infect them, but it can readily spread, um, causing tremendous impacts. And then we also have you know, data from our knowledge of the genomes of species that are both in captivity or in the wild, where we can look at how similar their initial binding site receptor would be to humans. And that gives us another way to understand how susceptible they might be to infection. And so from that work, we know that many of the primates are very susceptible. And so that's the guiding aspect to some of the work that we're doing with, uh, with wild apes, wild monkeys, and, and so on. Fortunately, we haven't seen evidence of primate exposure in the wild as of yet. But as I said before, we're not really looking. So we're trying to give distance. We're trying to make sure we're not exposing wild species in the process of studying them. So we've scaled back a lot of our research operations to really avoid the risk of infecting them. But when we have seen animals infected, they've typically been in captive settings where there's a lot of close human interaction. So there's good opportunities for transmission. There's also good opportunities to see symptoms. And so it's, it's been the animals that have shown symptoms that have been tested. And so we don't have a lot of testing of wildlife in captivity or the wild for asymptomatic individuals. So we don't have any sense of really how many animals have been exposed. We just have a sense of, of animals that are exhibiting symptoms that look like those of COVID-19 what proportion of those have turned out to be infected. So there's a lot of a lot of unknowns. I think for a lot of people, this has felt like the big one. This is going to be the big moment of their life when they have been forced to think about an infectious disease and the impact it has on their day-to-day -day existence. Has this been the big one? Are there other pathogens out there lurking that could have even more of a profound effect on our society than SARS-CoV-2 has? There are many lurking. This is, in many ways, a best-case scenario because 
the one that got out that hit us had a, a very low mortality rate and it doesn't spread very well compared to some of the others that are out there. So many of us who've been working on these issues for years, you know, we ironically, we had a massive conference in October of 2019 focused exactly on these types of issues because we're so aware of how many of these are out there. And, you know, following up with uh, others who were at that meeting, we're all feeling so fortunate that it was one of the COVID uh, viruses that has lower mortality, lower capacity to spread. Um, in the same vein, we were also worried, what if another one makes the jump now while we're still dealing with the first one? You know, that was that was our biggest worry in year one of this was... We hope that the next one won't come soon enough that we're dealing with it simultaneously with this one. So we really need to be ready for the next one because it will come. And we need to do a better job of understanding where these are coming from and reducing the risk factors because they will come, but we can make them come less frequently and we can ensure that they kill fewer people and impact our quality of life to a lesser extent. Thomas Gillespie is a disease ecologist at Emory University. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's also where you can leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.